0: Okay, today we come to Matthew chapter 25. We'll be looking at the whole chapter. And just remind you, it is Holy Week, or some might call it Passion Week. In fact, if you look at the very next chapter, you'll find uh, Jesus, it says in chapter 26, that when Jesus had finished all these sayings, the, the sayings of the Olivet Discourse, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So it's just a couple days before Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection. And so Jesus is teaching some some parables here in Matthew 25, and He's trying to illustrate something. He's trying to teach something. The master teacher often used these parables, or what some would call these earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Uh, In this case, He's teaching about His second coming. Uh, We don't know exactly when that's going to be, but He's telling us... uh, uh, some some signs he's told us some signs leading up to his coming. What what's his coming going to be like? It's going to be at a time when it's it's least expected. However, Matthew 24 tells us the approximate time. That it, it so so people who who know the signs of Matthew 24, who know their Bibles, will will know the approximate time of Jesus' return. They just don't know the exact day and hour. So if they're looking at those birth pain signs that Jesus talks about, well, they'll, they'll give them kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, some encouragement through those difficult and dark days of the tribulation. So the setting here in Matthew 25, or at least for the first particular parable, was a typical Jewish ceremony. Oh, it's, a, it's a wedding ceremony, and you'll see a picture on the, on the screen here of, of what someone's idea of what it would look like. You have to understand uh, weddings in Israel are different from probably what you and I are used to. In Israel, wedding was the most celebrated social event uh, of any village in Israel. Most people in a village would be involved in some way or another as a participant or, or a guest. It was a time of great happiness, huge festivity, lots of food and fellowship and drinking would happen. A Hebrew marriage consisted of three parts. You'll see in this next slide here, it might help you out a little. Uh, The first thing that you might not be used to in our culture is that uh, there would be an engagement. Now, we have engagements, but you have to realize what happened is the engagements were arranged by the fathers of the groom and the bride. Uh, That probably didn't happen to any of you who are married, I assume. And so the engagement would amount to a contract of marriage, uh, the the groom and the bride didn't really have a choice in the matter, so the fathers would arrange this. And so the second stage was the betrothal period. Uh, You've probably remember uh, one of the most famous stories in the Bible when Jesus, you know, of course he was born through Mary, and uh, you remember the whole story of Joseph and Mary and what went on there. And so there was this issue when Mary was was pregnant during the betrothal period, and Joseph was trying to figure out, am I going to divorce? Uh, Mary, she's pregnant, and it wasn't obviously from me, so there's some other man involved in the process here. Well, that was during that betrothal period that happened, and it was during the stage they would have this uh, a marriage ceremony where a bride and a groom would actually exchange vows. And so it was at that point, the couple was actually considered married. So betrothal was very serious. And so the betrothal could last for many months, and uh, often the groom needed many months because he had to do several things. Uh, he needed to go establish himself in a business, you know, become a farmer or something. Uh, or uh, the other thing he needed to do is he also needed to pr- provide a house for his bride. Often uh, Often the grooms would go and build a house onto their father's house. So there, there's great imagery in, in John chapter 14 when Jesus says, uh, "I'm going to take you to my father's house. I've prepared these, these rooms for you in my father's house." Well, that Jesus in John 14 is referring back to this, the imagery of a Jewish wedding ceremony. And it's, and then it was at the end of the betrothal period that the wedding feast would be held. And you'll see a, uh, that's kind of what it would look like probably, as far as I know. And so, uh, they, again, there were, these things could go on and on for, for, for weeks, depending on how wealthy the father was. And so this festivity began with the groom coming with his groomsmen to the bride's house. And they would make a big deal out of this. A lot of festivity and celebration. So together then, the bride and the groom, uh, as well as all the attendants, would, would parade through the streets, making lots of noise, again, celebrating, having a good time, proclaiming that the wedding feast was about to begin. You need to understand this to understand what Jesus is going to teach us here. And so... Generally the procession coming from the bride's house to the groom's house would happen at nighttime and that's why Jesus uh is teaching this here about these these 10 women with their their lamps or their torches. And so they would uh they would need these going through the dark streets. There was no lamps, you know, street lights like we have today. And so th- this was a big deal, and, and they would, they would want to attract all the attention they possibly could, because they wanted everybody to know, hey, so and so are getting married. Well, actually, it, it was the last stage of their wedding ceremony. It was a big celebration. So it was, it's, it's this third stage, this third part here that Jesus used to teach the parable of the ten virgins. So let's read it together, okay? Uh, Matthew 25 we'll start in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. 5 of them were foolish and 5 were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us! But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And that ends the parable of the ten virgins. Well, let's just quickly highlight a few things in this particular parable, and then we'll move on to the next one. So we see Jesus telling us this story of ten women. They're all invited to a marriage feast. Jesus describes five of them as foolish and five as wise. And, we'll, and hopefully it's obvious to you the difference between the foolish and the wise. If not, uh, you'll see it as we go through here. But uh, one of the things I want to highlight for you is that there's a lot of similarities there's, there's things that are the same about the foolish and the wise virgins here. So how are the women alike? Well, there, there's at least six things I want to point out to you. Number one, all had been invited to the banquet. All been invited to the banquet. Each of these women had received an invitation, and was they were anticipating a banquet with the groom and, and the bride there. They wanted to be at the, the celebration, and uh, they knew it was coming. And so this information is important for us to understand for at least one reason, because it's indicating that these people had heard the gospel. They'd heard the gospel. They're they're a part of this, this this celebration, if you will. They're they're there, they're, they're waiting for the groom, in this case the groom's representing Jesus Christ. Of course, the church is often called the Bride of Christ, so... These are you need to understand these are not unreached people these are people who have heard of Christ they're they're waiting they've been invited to the banquets number 2 they all had responded positively to the wedding invitation they and, and you say well how do we know that well they they show that because here they are waiting for the groom to 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 come through the streets taking his bride and and the bridesmaids back to his house Number three, they had joined the group there that were waiting for the Lord. They're waiting for the Lord. Do you understand that? These are not people who are who are uninterested. And number four, they all, they all uh, all had some affection and even love for the groom. Some affection and love for the groom. They're not indifferent participants. I mean, why would they be standing around waiting for the groom if they had no love and no interest at all? They're they're. They're happy for the groom in this situation. They're happy for this this wedding. And number five, all confessed Jesus as their Lord. And we even see see in verse 11, they call him Lord, Lord. You probably, that phrase there sounds very similar to Matthew chapter 7 though, doesn't it? Where Jesus uh, says, depart from me, I never knew you. And so they're confessing Jesus as Lord, but obviously that's not enough. And number six, all believed in Jesus and in some sense were waiting for his second coming. And so the foolish women, and here they are, they're, they're waiting, but were they ready? No, they're not ready. They're, and, and the thing that distinguishes the foolish from the wise women here is the foolish were not ready. They didn't have the oil. And by the way, some people put great significance on the oil. Let me caution you not to do that. In parables... You can get details, but you can go off on all these rabbit trails if you get stuck on the details. The oil is not significant, all right. And and so there, one of the lessons of hermeneutics you need to understand is there is there's one main point here that Jesus is trying to get across, and and often he gives it right at the end of the parable. If you look at verse 13, here's the point that Jesus wants you to get. He says, "Watch therefore, for you know neither the day." Nor the hour. He wants you to be ready. Don't. So, so the the problem with the foolish women, they were not ready. So, what does it mean to be ready then? Well, here's what Charles Spurgeon said. This is helpful. He said it. He, he, at least he saw it as an inner change brought about by regeneration or the new birth. He, he says this. I quote, a great change has to be wrought in you, far beyond any power of yours to accomplish, ere you can go in with Christ to the marriage. You must, first of all, be renewed in your nature, or you will not be ready. You must be washed from your sins, or you will not be ready. You must be justified in Christ's righteousness, and you must put on His wedding clothes, or else you will not be ready. You must be reconciled to God. You must be made like to God, or you will not be ready. My friend, do you understand? It starts with salvation. It starts by putting your, your faith, your belief, your trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And that brings us back to the pressing question of these chapters, the Olivet Discourse chapters, is are you ready? Have you, been, have you believed on Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you living for Jesus now? Are you truly ready? Those foolish women may have thought they were ready, but they were not. So, how do you know which side you're on then? How do you know if you're one of the foolish ones or the wise ones? Well, we'll see in the next couple parables, Jesus is going to answer those questions or that question for us, but let me just give you a heads up. How do you know which side you're on, the foolish or the wise? Well, number one, answer this question Are you faithfully serving King Jesus now? Are you faithfully serving King Jesus now? All right? We're not looking at those lessons yet, but you need to answer that question. Are you faithfully serving King Jesus now? Not, well, I'll get around to it some other time in my life. No, now. What are you doing now? And the next question that really helps us to know which side we're on is this. Are you serving the king's servants? And are you doing that because you love the king? Why Why serve the king's servants? Why do you serve God's people? Because you love King Jesus. And so the next parables that Jesus teaches helps us to answer this question, how do you know what side you're on? Well, let's look at some lessons, quick lessons we can learn from this particular parable. Number one, the coming of Jesus, of King Jesus, may be delayed. Now, he's using this to teach us of his coming, remember? and we see in verse 1 he he says then he uses the word then in verse 1 and he's carrying on from chapter 24 when is this kingdom of heaven what coming when is it going to be like well it it might be delayed and it has been delayed remember the apostles even during during Jesus day they thought it would it would be soon possibly even during their lifetime and so now what are we approximately 2000 years after that and Jesus still hasn't returned we're still looking for his coming. We don't know how long it's going to be. Number two, King Jesus will come without warning. He often described it like coming like a thief in the night. It's going to come without warning. And this is why the parable by the end, it, it ends with those words in verse 13, therefore keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. And if you did, then you, it wouldn't come without warning then, would it? But it's imminent. His return is imminent. And number three, the third thing we can learn is that being prepared is not transferable. You can't transfer from, from someone to you or you to somebody else. It, and I don't mean by this that that uh, one saved person may not be used of God to bring the Gospel to another person. I don't mean that God can't use you to lead someone to Himself. After all, you think about it, that's how the gospel normally spreads. God often uses people to spread His gospel. And so I mean that no person can get by on another person's faith. You can't get by on someone else's faith. I mean, these foolish women, they they had to be watching, they had to be ready. And if they weren't, Jesus says, I don't know you. Many people delude themselves, thinking that Christ knows them. Some people get, you know, they think, well, hey, my my mother and father were were Christians all their life, went to church all their life, and I was baptized as a baby, or whatever, you know, hey, I've done all these good works, and uh, surely, you know, you know, my good works outweigh my bad works. You know, people think all these sort of things, but being prepared is not transferable. You can't be saved by. The life of Christ in someone else, the Holy Spirit must reside in within you. It doesn't count if it's in somebody else and He's not in you. The Bible says you don't have the Spirit, you don't have life. It's that simple. And so they, they they do not have true faith in Christ, but they they these people were exposed to it. A lot of people have been exposed to the gospel over years, maybe maybe all their life, and they, they suppose that, that sometime, uh, you know, the, the time of Christ's judgment, they're going to be able to uh, appeal to God and say, hey, you know, you know, look at these things, look what I've done, or whatever. You have to remember the parable here reveals that when Christ returns, each one of these people are going to stand on their own. Are they ready? And so, it's not enough for you to say, hey, my mother was a Christian, or my father was a Christian, or... Or whatever. You can't say, my my wife was, was saved, or my wife wasn't saved. You can't, you can't say that sort of stuff. You're, you're going you're to be judged for who you are. And so the question will be, where do you stand? Number four, a fourth lesson we can learn is that lost opportunities can't be regained. Lost opportunities can't be regained. Did you see what the Master says to these foolish women? Who were not ready? I mean, they're saying, Lord, Lord, open to us in verse 11, but he just says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. These foolish women set out to buy oil, but the groom came along and they're too late. And so that's the way it's going to be when Christ returns, when he comes back. There's going to be people who, who think they're ready and they're not. And so those who are ready will be taken into the marriage feast, and those who are not ready, they're actually going to be shut out. Now, do not say, I I will turn to Christ later. Please don't say that. Some people say that, and the Bible warns us about that. You don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, so uh, you don't know what's going to happen. Today might be the last time you actually hear the gospel. And you need to warn people of that if you're a believer. And so the only wise thing then is to come to Jesus now, isn't it? While there is today. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And so it's important to understand that lost opportunities can't be regained. Once you're dead, there is no other opportunity. Well, Jesus goes on to uh, help, help us understand about his coming by looking at the parable of the talents next in, in verse 14. So let's read, <coughs> excuse me, the parable of the talents starting in verse 14. For it, for it you say, well, what's the yet? He's, remember, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, talking about his return, what's going to happen after that. That's going to be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. For one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground, the worthless servant, into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's the parable of the talents. So remember, Jesus is, is teaching about his, his coming, what's it going to be like, and, and even after, what is, what's that going to be like, and how are people going to be rewarded, and so forth. What is He expecting when He comes back? to really help us to understand what Jesus is teaching here, we need to understand what a talent is. So that's my first question for you. What is a talent? Well, you have to understand, this, this is really hard to, to interpret. First of all, that in Palestine, a talent was not a coin. A lot of people think it, it was. But what it was was actually a measurement of weight. The talent was a measurement of weight. And so because because coins could actually be made of several different things, such as copper or gold, silver, Jesus is not specifying here the kind of coinage in his story. That's not the point. We can get bogged down with details sometimes. It's really impossible to calculate how valuable the talents were. Now, if you do some reading and studying on this, and maybe even if you have a study Bible, it might give you some opinions on this. it's, it's sufficient to say this: <clears throat> that these were large amounts. Okay, we do know that amount. Uh, a talent, if it was six thousand denarii, remember a denarii was was a day's wage for for uh, you know just a, a Roman soldier, for example, then it would have taken approximately twenty years for the for a, a, just an average person to earn that much money. Twenty years to earn this much money. Okay. So, obviously, you just put that in whatever, you know, you work for 20 years and you figure that out, okay? It's a lot of money. It doesn't matter, you know, how much you make. And so the amount here is unimportant. And so, by the way, is the fact that the parable is about money. We can get bogged down with that too as well. Money is one thing that, that God entrusts to us that, that can often be misused. Now remember, money is not evil. The Bible says the love of money is a root to all kinds of evil. Okay? Money is not evil. It can be misused, though. And so, the, the same here, you need to understand, is true of many other gifts. So, this could be applied with whatever gifts you're talking about. For example, here's what John Ryle, back in the 1800s, he says, he, I quote, "...anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent." Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, all our talents. So don't don't think too narrowly on how you could could apply this particular parable. So the point of the story is that waiting for Christ's return and actually being ready are not passive matters here. They're not passive matters. In other words... Uh, you need to be active. You need to do something with what God gives to you. He expects you to glorify Him through what He gives you. And so we got to work, in other words. you, After all, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talks about we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? But you go on to verse 10, it says you're saved for good works, to bring Him honor and glory. So we got to work faithfully and ener- energetically. Now, by the way, don't wait. Do it now. Well, the master's response in this parable was crucial. Did you notice the master responded the same way? In fact, I think it's the same words in our Bible. He says the same thing to, to the guy who doubles his... Both these guys double their monies, the first two guys, right? So if it was five talents or two, they both doubled it. And, and the master responds in the same way. Well done, good and faithful servant. But there is one guy who did nothing, absolutely nothing. And it's, it's, the master's response here is, is is quite interesting. He condemns the the one talent servant for a couple reasons. Did you notice? He condemns him for number one for his wickedness and for being lazy. You say uh, wickedness and laziness. Why? Why is that? Well, he's wicked because of what he actually accused his master of. Did, did you remember what he said of his master? He he, he accuses him of being unjust. I know you're a hard man. Well, the master wasn't that way at all. He's quite generous, in fact. (laughs) And so uh, he's he's wicked because he's accusing his master of being unjust, and he's lazy because he wasn't faithful with what the master gave him to use. It wasn't his. He was supposed to be a steward of this and use it wisely, but he didn't. And so then the master gives the talent to the one who has the ten. And why did he do that? Well the Bible says everyone who has will be given more and whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him verse 29 says And it's interesting the result what what does the master do to this wicked lazy servant of his He cast him out into outer darkness which is again one of these images Jesus uses of hell talks of eternal punishment and he'll elaborate that on that more in in the in the verses to come. Now, some look at this and say, man, the master's really cruel. He's mean. He's nasty. I mean, what what kind of a response is that? Why did the master respond this way? Okay, hold on. In verses 24 and 25, uh, you can just hear, I hope you can, anyway, hear the angry, self-justifying, accusing tone of the servant. This one talent guy who did nothing with his stewardship is trying to he, he's quite angry he's self-justifying he's accusing the master it's the master's fault not his it's the master's fault and so this accusation is of course not true at all the master was not a hard man in fact he had been quite generous in giving his servants what they didn't deserve and so apparently this this one talent man here hated his master or at least he had a very uh, uh, self justifying, unjust view of the master. And so, my friend, there's certainly lessons we can learn from this. One of the things we need to understand is we got to avoid a do nothing Christianity. Nowhere do you see in the Bible that Christianity is, is sit around and do nothing. To do nothing is actually proof you don't love Jesus Christ, you don't love your master, you don't belong to him, and you have no share in his kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. There is serious punishment to people who think they're going to get into the kingdom and sit around and do nothing with what the Master has given to them. So Let's talk about some lessons we should learn from this particular story. Number one, there will be a future day of judgment. And by the way, it is for all people. For all people. But what do many people think of? Well, a lot of people don't want to think about death. They don't want to think about a coming judgment day. They don't They don't want to think about their being accountable to God. They don't want to think about God, a lot of people, right? People usually think the opposite. However, Jesus spoke of judgment several times in Scripture. But the people I'm describing consider God's judgment as just one of those irrational and... and things it's it's the least anticipated in their minds they don't want to think about it they just want to go about life you know like Jesus said they just want to eat, drink, and be married you know because tomorrow we might die you know, a lot of people are that way aren't they but what do people think of when one speaks of dying if they if they talk about dying people don't want to usually, but if they do you know most probably don't want to think of it at all but You know, some people just aren't even certain of it, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to, you know, if I die, when I die, what's what's it going to be like afterward, is there something after death, and so a lot of times they don't want to talk about it, and if they do think of the afterlife, it's, you, you know, a lot of times it's not in pleasant terms, and so, at the very least, they think of a continuation of life as we know it. They just want to go about life eating, drinking, and being merry. And so a lot of people don't want to think about it. Very few consider it actually might be worse than this life. It might be. In fact, Jesus says it might be. And so they can't, some people can't imagine that an almighty God would, would actually bring severe judgment on people whom he has made. But what is reality? What is reality? Think about this. If there is a moral universe, and there is, by the way, and if that moral universe is created and ruled by a moral God, and there is, then the logical, if you keep going down this line of logic, then there has to be a future day of judgment. Evil must be punished. That's what righteous judges do. A good judge is is not going to have someone come up before his bench and and let someone who is guilty of a transgression go free. Good judges don't do that. Evil must be punished. Number two, a second lesson we can learn is that judgment is based on works. Now, before you call me a heretic, listen, okay? <laughs> All right? Uh, we're not comfortable with this, are we? That judgment is based on works. I mean, it, that really troubles particularly Protestants. This is one of those things that divides Protestants from Catholics. Uh, you and I have been taught that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It, it, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to His mercy that He has saved us, right? We all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? However, in the parable of the talents, what's the judgment based on? It's based on the use, or shall we say, the misuse of the talents that were given to these servants. And so if you're not working for Christ, guess what? You're not justified. Uh we, we studied this in BLT. We learned in James chapter two that a workless faith is a dead faith. It's a dead faith. It's not a genuine faith. Your faith is dead, James says, chapter two. So judgment's based on works. And number 3, all excuses will fail. <laughs> you 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 cannot pull the wool over God's eyes, so to speak. So the man who is given one talent and he hides it in the ground, he tries to self-justify himself. He's well, hey, he's he's, he's saying bad things about the master. He's he thinks he knows the master's nature, but did he? No. Servant didn't actually know his master at all. He calls him a hard man. So the servant was only making an excuse when he did that, wasn't he? And so it was was a foolish excuse. It was a wrong excuse and an accurate excuse. And it certainly uh, did not fool the master at all, did it? He wasn't fooled. Sadly, many people today do the same thing. They accuse God of all all sorts of unreasonable, uh, foolish, wrong things, don't they? I'll give you well, I'll give you one example. This might apply to us. Some Christians use the doctrine of election as an excuse why they shouldn't evangelize. Right? The Bible teaches on election and predestination, this sort of stuff. And they say, Well, uh, uh, what's well, in the Bible, so I don't need to go and evangelize. Wrong. <laughs> Same God who teaches that truth also commands us to evangelize. So we don't have an excuse so, my friend, you're not going to get away with your excuses when you stand before the judge of the universe, when you stand before Jesus there at the bench. All excuses will fail. Then Jesus proceeds to teach on the goats and sheep judgment, starting in verse 31. So let's read, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That ends Jesus' Olivet Discourse. These are hard words, but may I remind you, these are Jesus' words. Let's quickly just make a few points in this story. Some call this a parable, but to me it doesn't really seem to be a parable because Jesus is actually talking about a judgment that's yet to come. So let's take a look at the setting, starting in verse 31. We see here that this judgment will take place when King Jesus returns. It's when He returns. You see that in verse 31. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus. Again, talking about His humanity and His deity, Both natures, two natures in one person forever. And So when He comes in His glory, He's going to sit on His glorious throne. He's going to rule. He's going to bring judgment. He's going to do a separation here of the goats and the sheep. And So He's going to separate the unbelievers from the believers. That's what the goats and the sheep represent here. All throughout Scripture, sheep represent His people. Hopefully we don't need to talk too much about that. By the way, uh, I remember one time I went hunting on some farm here in the Waiketo, and this particular farmer wanted the goats shot on his farm, and they, these goats were wandering around out with the sheep. And i got to tell you, when they're wandering around out with sheep, sometimes they're hard to find. You know, when a goat's in the bush all by himself, it's kind of obvious. They kind of stick out like a sore thumb, but they, they were just in amongst the sheep, and, and I was, there was a couple times I was wandering around in the paddock and looking at these sheep, and I'm like, That's not a sheep. That's a goat. <laughs> it's right there amongst the sheep, and that's the that's the way it is sometimes. Even even in this world, Jesus talked that way, didn't he? You know, sometimes unbelievers and believers can be amongst them other themselves, and they you know they kind of look like one another and kind of talk like one another, but they're not actually one another. And that's the illustration Jesus is using here. But there was a different reward here, wasn't there? A very different reward. Uh, for 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 the sheep or for these believers, did you notice that the believers will be given an inheritance? Verse 34. They'll be given an inheritance. He, Jesus says, uh, and, and He's the King of course, He says, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What's the basis for that reward? Again, it's 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 the basis is whether or not they showed mercy to Jesus Christ. Now you might be asking the same question that that was being asked here. What show mercy to Christ? Uh, Jesus isn't here. How can how could I have done that? Well, Jesus gives this this list. By the way, the list is not exhaustive. It's not an exhaustive list. It just gives you a few ideas of how you could minister to Jesus Christ. All the points speak of various works of compassion or mercy to hurting people. Who are these hurting people? Well, I can tell you there's, this has been uh, misinterpreted many times by, by well-meaning people, sincere people, to say that we need to have all these mercy ministries to unsaved people all around the world. And so we got to go and we got to do all these various things, spend you know, millions and millions of dollars for these unsaved people, you know, helping them, you know, build wells and so forth. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you can't use this passage to prove that. Because the ones that Jesus is talking about here, these, these brothers and sisters are clearly believers. Over and over in scripture again, the brothers and sisters are referring to believers. That's who Jesus is talking about here. And so you show mercy to Christ by showing love and compassion and mercy to Hurting Christians. How might you do that? Well, you look after hunger and thirst needs. You come across a fellow Christian who is who is hungering and thirsting, meet the need. And when you do, Jesus says you're meeting His needs. You're looking after Him. You can you can look. Uh, another one mentioned there is showing hospitality to strangers. You ever have a Christian stranger come wandering into town or? You ever meet some Christian stranger somewhere else? Meet their needs. Jesus says when you do that, you're, you're doing it unto Him. Providing clothing for Christians. Visiting and caring for, for sick Christians. Visiting Christians who maybe have been in prison for their faith. By the way, the, that's what it's talking about here. We're talking about Christians who have been in prison for their faith, for good reasons, for the gospel's sake, for Christ's sake. Those kind of Christians need to be visited. It's not an exhaustive list, but Jesus is saying, when you do that to another Christian, you're showing the reality of a genuine faith, and you are doing it as unto Christ Himself. But people who don't have a serious judgment and show that they're actually unbelievers. That's the goats. And there is a great punishment for these goats, for these unbelievers. We see in verse 41, the punishment is eternal hell. It's eternal hell, verse 41 says. Then he will say, that's Jesus will say to those on his left, those goats, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And the basis for that punishment is the exact opposite of what we just saw for the believers. Unbelievers are not concerned about meeting the needs of hurting Christians, are they? Well, not for the most part, anyway. They refuse to show mercy to Christ because they refuse to to uh, care for Christians' needs. That's the point of verse 45. And he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least, or to the one of the least of these, that's referring to the Christians, you did not do it to me. That's Jesus speaking. So they refused Christ when they refused to care for the Christians. That's why they're judged in this way. So what's the conclusion? Verse 46. The conclusion of the judgment is that the unbelievers go to eternal punishment and the believers go to eternal life. Let me just finish by talking about a particular question that is very important. Particularly in our day and age that we live in now, people don't want to talk about hell. Sadly, even some preachers don't want to talk about hell. They say that Jesus, you know, meek and mild and loving Jesus... You know, he you know, we, we need to be like Jesus. <laughs> Think about that statement. Who was the one who talked the most about hell? Jesus. All right? And again, we see Jesus talking about hell. He's talking about eternal punishment. So these people who say, Well, we just gotta be like Jesus. We gotta be meek and mild and loving. We don't want to talk about sin and and you know, eternal torment and that sort of stuff. No, no, we're not going there. I'll remind you, Jesus was the one in the Bible who talks the most about hell. And here's how he describes it. Look at verse 41. We see in verse 41 that hell is a total separation. It's a total separation. Again, look at verse 41. He's going to say to those on his left, Depart from me. That's Jesus speaking. Yes, I know God is everywhere, but there's some aspect about hell. There's there's this separation, certainly in fellowship and relationship. So, the worst part has to be, it's a separation from Jesus. Number two, hell's a bad association. <laughs> it's just, it is a bad association. Who are you associating with? Jesus says that eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. Right? That is a bad association. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, some people think of hell as, as one of these places. In fact, you'll see comic strips about this, right? You know, people thrown into hell, and the devil and the demons are down there torturing these these poor people who are thrown into hell, right? You, you've seen those kind of pictures? That is not the way Jesus describes it. Jesus describes hell as a place that was prepared for Satan and his angels. Those demons, when they go there, they're going to suffer. It's not a place where they're in charge. God's in charge. Uh, you think about that. who's the last last person you'd want to spend eternity with? (laughs) I was just thinking about this. Wait a minute. How about about the devil and his demons? Do you want to spend eternity with those guys as they're being tormented and punished for all eternity? Not me. No, thank you. So how bad is hell? Well, hell is suffering. Hell is suffering. Jesus says this several times in Matthew. I mean, verse 30, he talks about Casting this worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, in verse 41, he, he talks about these people are cursed. They're going to depart from him. They're going to be in this eternal fire. Well, you and I can debate, and, and certainly commentators have done this, is this fire literal or is it not? Well, frankly, does it really matter? It's a place of eternal punishment and torment. It's suffering. Whether you take it literally or not, you, you gotta come to the end conclusion that they're gonna suffer. It's not a place where they're gonna party with their friends. I remember witnessing to someone several years ago, and this this particular person I said, uh, if you were to die today, are you 100 percent sure you go to heaven? And this person says, No, I'm gonna go to hell, and, and I and I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are. I was like, just my mouth kind of like hits the floor, my eyeballs bug out. Of it. What kind of a response is that? That was horrible to hear it coming from the lips of a person. And then you try to explain what Jesus says. Hell is not a place where you get to party with your friends. It's total darkness. And that's the next point. Hell is darkness. Jesus describes it as outer darkness. There's no light at all. These people who go to hell will be shut off from all sight of other people. They'll be shut off from all sight of everything even sight of themselves. There's not going to be partying going on in hell with friends. And last of all, hell is eternal. Jesus says so in verse 46. These people are going to go away into an eternal punishment. In other words, it's going to last forever and ever. And so, my friend, the only way you can avoid hell is you have to put your trust, your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ alone. Well, Allow me to kind of wrap up the Olivet Discourse by using an illustration from history. It's quite appropriate, I think. I, you probably know I like history, and, and uh, this is a very interesting, uh, applicable story. Back in 1941, there was a surprise attack, and the surprise was complete. You'll see some some airplanes on the screen here. These attacking airplanes came in two waves there were japanese airplanes you'll see in this this next uh, little diagram here the the japanese airplanes came flying in from the north they were flying over one of the islands of hawaii the first uh wave hit its target at 5 or, sorry 753 in the morning it was on a sunday morning when when the milit- some of these guys were still sleeping in their in their bunks the second wave of planes hit at 855 in the morning you'll see a picture of pearl harbor here they 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 already knew where all the ships were in pearl harbor this was the united states pacific fleet and you'll see battleship row there on both island uh, sides of that little island there there were at least eight battleships kind of the core of the united states pacific fleet and they wanted to take out those battleships they also wanted to take out the aircraft carriers but by god's sovereign grace you know what the aircraft carriers were out at sea on maneuvers god had providentially hindered the aircraft carriers from being sunk. And so these two waves just came coming, coming, and coming, and destroyed. There was a couple uh, air bases. They took the air bases out. All the airplanes were destroyed, and they they wanted to take out the the boats and the ships. And so after two hours, it was over. And the carriers that launched the planes off the coast of Hawaii were now headed back to Japan. You'll see the the planes. uh, Sorry, go back. Uh, You'll see... You'll see there, these are actual photos, by the way, that were taken in 1941 there. And so behind, the there was just chaos that was left. In fact, over 2,000 men died, 2,403, if I got my statistics right. Most of those were on the USS Arizona, which was a battleship. Uh, I think that's that might be the battleship there. But there was 188 planes that were destroyed. You'll see them sitting on the runway in that photo there and they also crippled the United States Pacific Fleet which included there were eight damaged or destroyed battleships and you'll see uh, there's one of them in the at least one there in the photo and some people have asked since then and, and certainly during that time how did this tragedy happen president roosevelt said that December 7 1941 would be a day that would live in infamy and it has been for many United States citizens ever since then But here's how it happened. The first Japanese attack, which was about 183 planes, took off from the aircraft carrier. They were 230 miles north of the island of Oahu. Again, you'll see pictures of the Japanese planes on the aircraft carriers there. Ironically, it's quite ironic that about 7 o'clock in the morning, there were two Army operators who who had uh, a very, uh, shall we say, uh, a very old uh radar system and they actually picked up approaching japanese fighters on the radar and so they contacted their uh their their officer in charge of them and the officer actually disregarded their their sights that they had seen on the radar and, and and he did that because he thought these were u.s bombers that were flying into hawaii from the mainland of the united states and so the first japanese bomb by the way Because the warnings went unheeded, 53 minutes later, the first Japanese bomb fell on Pearl Harbor. No one was prepared for what occurred. you'll You'll see the pictures of some of the aftermath here of some of the ships that just were destroyed. And you probably know nobody seemed to be prepared for what had occurred. Nobody seemed to be prepared, they weren't ready. And so the rest is history. At Pearl Harbor, the United States learned a very valuable lesson. And here's the lesson. You'll see uh, the next the photo there. The, this is the USS Arizona. Most of the guys were, were still in the ship. Most of the guys died still in the ship as, as a, uh, a bomb came flying through the stack of the ship and just <laughs> killed them. They learned a valuable lesson. The consequences for not being ready for an enemy attack are devastating. The sad thing is, there. remember, there were actually signs, there were warnings that an attack was coming. But those signs and warnings went unheeded. And had the United States military actually done something, and showed themselves to be ready for this attack, despite the fact that it happened on a Sunday morning, if they were ready, the losses would have been far less. So the element of watchful waiting applies here to the return of King Jesus, and so for the believer being ready for King uh, the King's return involves more than than hey don't just be caught off you know sleeping on duty so to speak. It's more than not being caught by surprise. Watchful waiting, being ready for the return of King Jesus involves living a life in faithful obedience to God now. It's it means investing our resources in the kingdom of God now and so my friend jesus is going to return soon he said he would the bible says jesus says those who are found faithful to god will be rewarded if not you will be punished so again i ask you the overarching question that jesus wants us to walk away with are you ready